This is In Hindsight, Half a Century of Research Discoveries in Canadian History, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. Today's episode is a very, very rich one in terms of records and a historian's dream, a cache of letters. A modern historian's dream, have the letters transcribed and on the web. Well, that's the case in this, this episode today. We've got 550 letters of a couple, Ontario born and raised, but who moved to Calgary. So it's an Alberta uh, Ontario, Alberta story, 550 letters. It's a two-way, two-way story because we've got his correspondence and her correspondence, and it's incredibly rich. The decade, the 1910s, the two-way exchange between Fred Albright and Evelyn Albright. Evelyn was extremely, she was a clever young woman, she had just graduated from Victoria College in the University of Toronto, English and history. And Fred, he, he was seven years older. He had graduated earlier in political science. And he'd come first to Calgary. He'd come actually with his good friend, John Brownlee. Uh, they were good pals from Victoria College. And they came out, they'd... Um, looked for articling jobs in law. They were going to become lawyers. They did briefly to make money for school. They taught school. Uh, but for university, I should say, to make money for university, they, um, they, they well, they, they paid for their education and whatnot. Now they're, they have their degrees and they're going to article in law. That's what he's, they, both men have decided that it's going to be their career. So they come to Calgary and um, Vancouver briefly, but then Calgary was the one that impressed them. Calgary was on the upsurge, a tremendous boom. And it just, the future was here. So uh, John Brownlee, Jack to his friends, and Fred Albright, they decide to apply for articles. They get they get in with good firms and um, they'll spend the next several years articling in law in Calgary. Evelyn, though, is back. She finishes her university and then she goes to the, her parents are living in the Niagara Peninsula. Her father was a Methodist clergyman and uh, she joins them and teaches school, helps um, in a local school. Uh, but she has already met Fred and they not so much romantic. You can see the correspondence. It's delightful because you'll see it's just sort of coming along nicely. The romance is building. And Fred would get back to Ontario and he'd be able to see her. And uh, things are, are moving along. But uh, actually, Evelyn is fascinating because she's, in many respects, she's representative of her age, but in others, she's well ahead of her own. That is, for example, with marriage, she was very hesitant she was an independent thinker, and she didn't want the thought of, of being married and, and just the restrictions of that were, were frustrating to her. And she, frankly, it's all in the letters. I, I don't want to spoil any of it. It's a frank exchange between Fred and Evelyn. And eventually, though, uh, Fred convinces her that he's a progressive thinker, and um, marriage won't be the drudgery that she 
is fearful of, and uh, they do get engaged, and uh, things at that point are moving along. So all of this is in the letters, 550 of them. They are The originals are all at the uh, regional library at Western University in London, Ontario, and it's thanks to an extraordinary woman, a volunteer in the museum, uh, excuse me, in the regional history library, I should say. It's thanks to Lorna Brooke, who has transcribed them and put uh, introductions to uh, various uh, sections of their lives together, uh, the letters that pertain to those sections, and uh, done just a wonderful job. And they are all on the web. So we're just blessed. And in the written text, all the background details are provided, the web link and what have you. So just a treasure trove. That's how we're starting today. Different start. First time we've done this before. And it's about this rich collection of letters on the 1910s, Alberta, Ontario, female male exchange. And really, really rich. And I don't think I can think of anything as rich for the early 20th century as the Albright letters. Now, this enormous collection, we've got to take us, you can't just, we can't possibly in this, uh, well, this short oral report on these on this collection. We can't do it justice because there's so many aspects to it. So the historian has to, you have to have a perspective. You have to have a special interest. We can't, if we're going to come out of this alive, we're going to have to focus on one aspect. And of course, with my research background and my personal interest, so much is the historian's personal interest that determines what subjects are picked and what, what, what research is done. With my background and interest in race relations, that is the angle I'd like to stress. And we'll we'll look at just racial attitudes has come through the letters, not in an intensive way. That's for students to follow up. There's a oh, as I mentioned before, this treasure trove for term papers in this collection, and uh, on many subjects. Uh, but this race relations will be underlying thread today. Now, Fred and Evelyn. Overall, there's a quote. One of my favorite books in Western history, uh, my favorite author who comes from Winnipeg, but actually lived in Calgary for the latter part of his life, an incredibly, incredibly successful popular writer. It's his second career for him. Uh, his name is James Gray. And James Gray in the 70s wrote several barn burners uh, books. Uh, Red Lights on the Prairies probably is the most famous. Uh, it just taking, he, 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 Went. He did very thorough work. He was a popular writer, but he did very thorough newspaper work and uh, also had a great life experience. So his, his books are interesting. The book, I'm, I want to just take one quote from it. It's The Roar of the Twenties, Study of Western Canada in the Twenties, published in 1975. And it's just, here we go. I'm going to read it slowly because it sort of is the, the theme for what follows. To be British and Anglo-Saxon and Protestant on the Western prairies at the onset of the 1920s was not only the best thing. To be British and Anglo-Saxon was the only thing. Isn't that wonderful? This is a day in which English-speaking Protestants are top dog and everything, doors are open, but for other groups, not so. And through the correspondence, we'll find traces of that. Well, just quickly, Fred and his best friend, John Jack, to his intimates, uh, Brownlee, 
uh, come west. 1908, the article here, they are called to the Alberta Bar in 1912. 1912, by the way, is a very important year in Calgary. It's the first Calgary stampede. And Fred was there. He writes back to Ontario telling Evelyn all about it. And that's in the written text. You have to wait to see that. But uh, anyways, they're, they're, they're doing well. Um, now, this was a land of opportunity for uh, English-speaking Protestant, a heck, a professional. This was terrific. John Brownlee would, uh, after becoming a full-fledged lawyer, would become a solicitor for an important grain company and uh, later chief executive officer of it. And eventually, in 1925, he was elected premier of Alberta. So there's a, a wow. And Fred himself, with a, he was, after three years of law, um, he's get article finished in 1912, he becomes a lawyer that same year. Well, in just three years after that, he is the leader of the Alberta temperance movement to make Alberta dry, ban alcohol. And he was, and, and he was also, I mean, it's only three years a lawyer. He was, he helped frame the Alberta temperance act. So, and, and a highly respected lawyer. So only a couple of years, they just were up and at it. Fred, the noted prohibition advocate, and John Brownlee beginning this corporate and eventually extremely successful political career. Now, get a little bit in our atmosphere, please. What we'll do is, well, there's a phrase, um, social Darwinism, uh, race theory. Um, these are phrases to describe racial attitudes at the time. And it was common practice, in fact, at, at the university, common practice, common belief that there was something to innate intelligence and, and temperament in races. Uh, in short, to put it in the most popular way, there were superior and inferior races. Um, and this this is commonly accepted. I mean, it's, it's certainly absolutely nauseating and objectionable to us today, but we have to realize that's the background. This had quasi-scientific endorsement. And people like, well, Brownlee and... And uh, Albright, I mean, they, they're, 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 that's in the background of their minds. Um, a, a wonderful quote, just to illustrate this point, is um, another Calgary lawyer who would be very successful indeed. His name was Bennett, R.B. Bennett. And R.B. Bennett, for example, gave a talk in 1914. And the talk was, why did Britain rule over countries like India and Egypt? And here's what Bennett said in 1914. He was a prominent provincial conservative at this point. Later, he'd go federal, and he'd become prime minister of Canada in the early 1930s. Well, this is the same man, R.B. Bennett, in 1914. And he says, in this talk, he said, okay, why did Britain rule over countries like India and Egypt? Quote, we are there because under the providence of God, we are a Christian people that have given the subject races of the world the only kind of decent government they have ever known. End of quote. <laughs> there you go. That's pretty enthusiastic, isn't it? And the uh, British Empire, of course, very, very, the feeling of that of, for Britain uh, in, in English-speaking Canada is very strong. Uh, we are Britons overseas, and that's part of the background here. Now, this is particularly hard on other groups. It really is. And uh, we'll quickly just review just a quick sketch, and then we'll get actually to some direct quotes from the correspondence. People like Fred and John Brownlee had no idea 
of the indigenous peoples. Calgary had grown from 4,000 to 44,000 from 1901 to 1911. That was a tenfold increase. The original inhabitants who'd been here for 10,000 years were totally forgotten. And economically, they were in terrible shape. All that was because of a number of factors, but primarily the explanation of their independence, that a buffalo was gone. The great herds were gone by the early 1880. The great herds were gone, period, and on the Canadian side of the board by, the, by 1880. And this was the mainstay of the economy of the Plains First Nations. So they were devastated. And there were other factors as well. The arrival of uh, settlers and uh, dispossession and whatnot. And in fact, the treaties were not being observed. In fact, the treaties were forgotten. And I'll make a stronger point of that shortly. So it really was not very, very good times for those not of the British Protestant persuasion. I'll give you a quote. Oh, there could be lots of them. Go ahead. Just dip in the newspapers in the 1910s. You'll find oodles of the most objectionable. I warn you again, but I'll give you one. This is the Albertan. That was Calgary's morning newspaper. 6th of April, 1911. A direct quote, which reflects this attitude. And the quote reads, We do not want a colored Alberta. Close out the yellow man, the red man, and the black man. They are not good settlers. They cannot become good Canadians. Unbelievable, isn't it? That's a major Calgary newspaper. And all kinds of other examples can be given. This was the zeitgeist of the time, the superiority of the British. And it just—it was just the ruling dominant outlook. There were small minorities in Calgary. Um, well, small Jewish community, about 600 people. There were several hundred Chinese residents. And really, though, that was about it. The rest were a British background. America via the United States, great many, mind you. But primarily then, their heritage was British. Uh, Protestants outnumbered Roman Catholics by roughly eight to one. And uh, this is all reflected. The names of the schools are named after, our, our city schools are named after imperial statesmen <laughs> and members of the royal family. It, uh, there's annual celebrations of Empire Day. Great fuss is made when the royal visitors. The stampede, the royal visitor for the stampede, 1912, for example, was the Duke of Connaught, who was then Governor General of Canada, who was Queen Victoria's favorite son. The central figure in the early 20th century was King Edward VII, celebrated by Calgarians on the moment of his coronation in 1902, covered incidentally by Annie Glenn Browder, who we already introduced in a previous episode. And King Edward VII was mourned by these same citizens at the time of his death in May of 1910. So very British, that's clear, and uh, really... <laughs> Seems puzzling now that there would be such enthusiasm, but that that's it. That's the whole background of it. Attitudes towards the First Nations, I've already suggested, were were not good. And I'll just reinforce that a little bit more because we've got um, some observations I'd like to introduce on on that score of the Indigenous peoples a little bit more. Because Fred Fred has a comment here that I'd like to bring bring in here. And in fairness, though, before I go any further, before making a list of these 
remarks, which are, are, are just so typical of the age, we must understand that these people, the Albrights, of course, and others, were prisoners of racial attitudes of the time. Prisoners, just as in many ways, we're prisoners of current attitudes as well. So to be fair, that's uh, just, I'm not going to take this aside, but just think of the environment, for example. What possibly are people going to say a generation from now about our ideas about the environment, our conduct with the environment? Well, I leave that to your thoughts, but I personally... Story cannot predict the future, but I'm not too optimistic that our scorecard will be will be very good. Well, certainly on the racial attitudes, the previous generation of a hundred years ago had serious deficiencies. There's one exception in Calgary. That was the leader of Calgary's social world, the iconic head of Calgary's social world, the Chatelaine of Beaulieu now Lougheed House and a National Historic Site. That's the house of James and Bill Lougheed. That's now a National Historic Site. Well, the Chatelaine, the, the queen of the Calgary social world, was Métis. This is in this one. History's always, I just live for these moments when there's a surprise, a big one. Bill was the social, she her rich uh, background family, a fur trade family, the Hardesties. Uh, her dad was a chief factor in Mackenzie River Valley. Her uncle was uh, chief factor at Fort Edmonton. He was reputedly the richest man in Western Canada in the 1880s. Uh, senator Hardesty, he became senator, uh, Senator Hardesty. Anyways, this family was of great prominence and they were the rulers of the previous era. But now with all the settlement, they've outnumbered and whatnot. But Bell still, though, was prominent because her husband, James Lougheed, was involved in politics. And he had become actually a very successful federal politician from Calgary. And he became Minister of the Interior, very senior post in 1920, uh, 21, 22. So he, her family was, and they had the mansion in Calgary, now Lougheed House, uh, National Historic Site. So these people were prominent. So. But what did Bell like? Okay, she's got on both sides. Both her mother and father were had indigenous background, and what 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 does she? How does she classify herself? Well, in this atmosphere, this stifling atmosphere about ra- the importance of race and uh, what have you, what was Bell's response? It wasn't an escape because in the nineteen oh one census, you had to identify. It was color coded. You have to identify your racial background. And well, Bell identified herself. She listed, listed herself as white in the 1901 census, but she was indigenous background. Uh, but it just shows you the pressures and, and who can condemn the uh, really. She was culturally, she was living a life of a, of a European woman and, and married, and children were going to European schools, or I should say, Canadian schools. And so the Indigenous link had been, was still there, mind you, but not as strong as it had been. And uh, anyways, she she identified as as as, as white. It just told you that, but she was Indigenous. So I'm, I'm not, we can't stay with it, but I just wanted to tell you, this is quite a subtle story. Um, now, with the Albrights now, let's just get specific because our job here is to look at we want to look at them in particular because of this rich correspondence. And you can do all kinds of other searches 
with these 550 letters you can look at uh, uh, perceptions of women. Um, uh, incidentally, I've got to say this. Evelyn is so interesting because she was stridently in favor of the French, of, of having women having the vote and of women's rights and uh, put off the mark with her racial attitudes, I must be the first to admit. But uh, honestly, she's 21st century in her, in, her, in her perception of the rights of women to equality. Um, another rich discovery uh, in, in historical work is the surprises. Nobody's perfect not by certainly through the lenses of, of today. Something's always a little bit different than it was that is in our day. But nevertheless, it's just it's a rich experience. And that's it, it's an adventure. These letters are an adventure. Let's leave it at that. Well, let's get specific. And here we go. These are very outstanding people. Fred is, they're, they're both involved in the Methodist Church in Calgary, now United Church of Canada, and um, doing good social work and all. Um, but they are, they are, people of their own age, of their own generation. And here we go, some racial attitudes. This is a, an example in the correspondence, February 1914. And I must say that, you see, we're very strong when Evelyn and uh, Evelyn's in Ontario and Fred's in Calgary, or when Fred's traveling and when Fred's in the army and he's writing back home because there's correspondence. Of course, when they're together, well, nothing's... There's always some deficiency. When they're together, there's no letters because they're talking to each other in person. <laughs> Well, anyways, Evelyn was, I believe, she was away at this time in Ontario or something of that sort. And anyways, Fred writes her. He's just, just he's, they're very good correspondents and just telling her about what's happened. He's just gone to hear, um, see um, the King Lear at the Grand Theater, Calgary's best theater. Well, built by the Lougheed family and uh, Belle was always in her her box whenever possible to watch productions, Bell Lougheed. Um, any case, this production was King Lear. It's February the 4th. And Fred writes to Evelyn. And this is, honestly, I'm just I'm just repeating what's in the letter. And it, it, by today's standards, of course, it, it makes you shiver. But again, please remember the context. Here we go. Last night, I noticed in one seat, two Greeks, two Canadian girls of very good family, a mulatto, and a couple Italians. Many other races were represented with a very small radius. End of quote. The Calgary lawyer did not approve of this, quote, indiscriminate assembly of extremely diverse classes. End of quote. He went on to add, quote, this is one disadvantage in taking seats anywhere but in the best part of the house. I wouldn't want to take any lady unless I could afford the better seats for this reason. End of quote. My goodness. Well, more. His attitude towards the Chinese was contradictory. He mentioned in a letter to Evelyn on September the 7th, 1913, of helping once a week with the Methodist mission to the Chinese in the city. The mission worked to teach the Asians English and to introduce them to Christianity. Well, that sounds okay, uh, introducing them to English especially. Yet in another note, Fred rejoiced, and fasten your seatbelts with this, he rejoiced that he had found the Empress Cafe did not employ Chinese labor. Quote, the dishes are clean, the food well-cooked and reasonable in price, and there is only white help in the kitchen. My gosh, hard to believe, isn't it? But that's it. As for the First Nations, he hardly recognized them at all. He overlooked the fact 
that there was a Treaty 7, which had recognized Indian reserves as First Nation property. Here was a lawyer. He didn't, he, he didn't recognize they had treaty rights. With several friends, he trespassed on the neighboring Zarsi or Tzitzina Reserve, hoping to stake an oil claim on their land. This is unbelievable, the naivete. Oh, as he frankly admitted to Evelyn on October 18th, 1913, quote, now we were, game, uh, they did some game hunting too. Now we were violating the law in two particulars. We had no license for shooting game and the searching for oil, oil development and on their property was also off base. So Fred writes, we had no, we, now we were violating the law in two particulars. We had no license and shooting on the Indian reserve is forbidden. I hope you don't think we were terribly wicked. Isn't it extraordinary? Well, it's all there in the correspondence. And that's what makes it. It sets, it, it's just not, it's something that's set in, in writing. And it's, it's, it really gives you a very good understanding of First Nations resentment and uh, discontent with this treatment, this inferiority and this Indian Act reservation, the Indian Act we've covered already. We're going to next, well, we're going to be doing Duncan Campbell Scott very soon. And uh, that's going to, remind us of the straitjacket of the Indian Act. Well, that's pretty well introduced things. There's a, a pecking order of, of, amongst races. The uh, Only the, those colored quotation marks people are, are not given any kind of respect. Uh, it's it's very tough for them, the Protestant, but if you're Protestant, English uh, Protestant English Canadian, the world's your oyster, to use the phrase. And that was the case for Mr. Brownlee and Mr. Albright and for their generation. It was it was something. But that was not things are going extremely well, but the whole thing turns and quickly now we're getting near the end. The whole situation is changed. They marry and they have, the, the, but it's a very short marriage because of the war. And the letters, they resume with the war. Of course, Fred is, he enlists. And here is another aspect, which is the mixture of admirable and, and questionable is repeated. Fred didn't want to go as an officer. And mind you, he had a university degree and he was a lawyer. He wouldn't have taken hard. Uh, him uh, wouldn't have been hard for him to wrangle himself as, into an officer's position and going overseas. He wanted to fight. He believed in in uh, supporting the British Empire and all, and it was a very patriotic act. And so he did. He, he enlisted, but not as an officer. He went as a private to be with the ordinary people. So it's extraordinary. It's just, just extraordinary. And then he did training, but he still doesn't. He becomes a sergeant, actually, in England. And um, well, but I don't know. That's pretty rough. The letters are full of it. Those and there's lots of folks that love the military history, and it, it certainly is a good, good, good story. Um, the military letters are, are really interesting, and the hardships. But he doesn't complain. He just keeps at it. And keeps. He joined the army, driven by a sense of duty and honor, and. Went as a private, was a sergeant. As a sergeant, he left with the 50th Battalion for England, then France. He fought his first and last battle at Passchendaele.
That was it. He died in his first military exchange in 1917. Now, into the last... And again, I really am, there's so much more that can be done. And I leave it to you, listeners, just have to go on the web. The letters are there. Just one of the last letters that Fred sent home. His, the family, the Evelyn, Evelyn Kelly was her maiden name. Evelyn, Evelyn Kelly Albright and Fred were close friends of the Coots family. And um, the Coots, good friends. Um, Fred mentioned on a letter in August, um, he said, uh, just he was actually just about to leave Canada for England and then eventually for France. And he says, it, it, he asked his buddy, George Coots, to mention him to a special friend. That was George Coots' son, David. And he said, Fred writes, remember me to David. And give him an extra good night hug for me. Good night hug and kiss. Well, Fred left from England. He went to Flanders. He was there in September 1917. And, well, just really, I leave it to you. The the bombardments and the, the lice and the rats and these letters are censored. Censored letters have all the all, or the rawness of it. It's just like reading about the Ukraine front today, which is horrifying. All it's all in Fred's letters. Well, Evelyn keeps up. She writes regularly, and Sunday, mid October, she wrote Fred of a church service at Central Methodist, to which she had taken young David Coots that morning. Wow, it's really poignant. Fred never received that letter. His life had already ended. On Monday, November 12th, Evelyn received a church telegram from Ottawa. It's the death notice. I'll leave it to you to read the full version. Just a bureaucratic note. Fred's been killed. They don't even know when. Killed in action between October 23rd and 26th. 1917, and a letter from the director of records. Oh my gosh. Wow. Evelyn's life changed forever. Well, she was a determined woman, and she knew Fred expected her to continue. And so, what did she do? She was a clever, bright, hard worker. She articled to become a lawyer in Calgary, and she succeeded. She became the second woman lawyer in Alberta in 1920. Well, my personal connection, though, is there as well. I came to Calgary, as you know, from episode one and two. I came in, especially, especially two. I came to Calgary in 1974, in the summer. Very shortly after, quotation marks, landing, I met, I got involved in the Chinook Country Historical Society of the Alberta Historical Society of Alberta. Now, I kid you not, the president in 1975 was David Coots. Circle is complete. I met the man who was mentioned in one of Evelyn's last letters to her husband. 
who was killed at Passchendaele in Flanders, 1917. Thank you.